we will be reading from two more portions of Scripture. First, we'll be reading in chapter 1 of Ephesians. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. We read Ephesians because we want to focus to to some degree in verse um, 4 and other verses in Ephesians 1 in our sermon. And then we'll be reading in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. So Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 1. Here is God's true and infallible word. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us, In Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even to Him, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. And now we turn to the book of Acts to chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 22. This is a portion of Scripture we we have had a sermon not too long ago, even before I started um, exposing the book of Acts. But this is where we have left off, and we will be reading this. It will be part of our third point in our sermon, more as an example and as an illustration, a living illustration of what a trust in the sovereign grace of God does in terms especially to our evangelism. So Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they spake, Peter had just finished preaching, as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about five thousand. Those are the number of those who have believed 
so far. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all, And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. And when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them, that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them, And commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them and let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was about above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was shown. Amen. Dear congregation, we have learned over the course of the last five sermons during this conference about the sovereign grace of God, how we need it, because in our own nature we are totally depraved, about its reality, because we are unconditionally elected, about its power, Because of Christ's limited but effectual atonement, we've learned about its grace because it's irresistible. We've learned about its endurance and how long it lasts. The effect of God's sovereign grace in the heart of a man or a woman lasts forever because of persevering grace. And today... We, we hope to conclude the whole matter applying 
the sovereign grace of God to three areas, and perhaps these are the most important areas in the Christian life. Well, because the first begins the Christian life, salvation, and then sanctification, which is a continuation of Christian life, and then the great duty and call. It's the great commission to the church, evangelism. So we're asking these questions. What is the effect that the sovereign grace of God, the understanding that our God is sovereign and gracious, what is that effect upon your salvation, your sanctification, your evangelism? How does it affect your understanding, your notion of salvation, sanctification, and evangelism? So we start with... Our first point, your salvation. And Ephesians 1 verse 4 says very clearly, according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. See, salvation, if you are saved, it is based upon His sovereign will. The the reality of your salvation did not begin the day that you repented and believed. It actually began in eternity past, before you were created, before you were formed, before the whole world was even created. God chose us before the foundation of the world. So number one, The concept of the sovereignty of God helps you know that salvation is of the Lord. That's that's a simple truth, and we need to begin with this. It sets everything up of what we have to consider still in, in this sermon. See, salvation is based upon His sovereign will. It's based upon divine predestination. If God had not chosen you, you would never have chosen Him. This is why predestination, election, is a friend of sinners. It is not an enemy. It is a friend because it's the only way that there's anyone saved in heaven. And remember that dynamic that with God, everything is about election. He chose to create this world. And then He chose to put uh, people in this world and animals in this world. And, And when this people grew and multiplied, He chose a people out of this world. And out of Abraham, He chose Isaac. And out of Isaac, He chose Jacob. And out of Jacob, He chose all 12. But of all 12, He chose Judah to be the predecessor of the Lord Jesus. And then we have the angels of God, and there are the chosen angels and the non-elect angels. But beloved, really the, the most emphatic thing about God and His desire to choose is that Jesus Christ, when He comes to this world, not only is one of His names the servant of God, not only is He the good shepherd, not only is He the branch, we find that name in Isaiah, but He is God's chosen He is the precious and chosen stone. That's just how God does it. Isn't isn't that how you do it? Everything you do is based on choice. It's based on will. Well, God who is supreme, who is a supreme being of all, would He not choose? And He has chosen a people. 
that has to be settled in our hearts. But then secondly, the sovereignty of God in your salvation should therefore humble you. As, as the hymn so ably says it, to Him who loved us long ago, before we came to be, who left His throne for earth below to save a wretch like me, to Him who freed us from our sins by dying on the cross to make us whole without with them, redeemed from dreadful loss, All praise to Christ from grateful men forevermore. Amen. Beloved, God will really only at the end of the day be truly worshipped by you and me if we grasp this reality. Salvations of the Lord, therefore I am to be humbled to the dust. We were reminded... And we're always reminded when we think of Calvinism, we're always reminded that Arminianism, which is the the opposite system of doctrine, is so man-centered. It's a proposition of man-centered religion. According to them, our depravity is not so bad after all, because within us we can muster up what we need in order to believe. A a well-known pastor who's even living still today, he has said this in a book, I can lead anyone to Christ if I know the key to their heart. See, not only only is the person who is about to be saved um, powerful to save themselves, but even preachers who might be evangelizing are powerful enough to motivate someone's heart in order to believe. According to them, God chose us because we chose Him. It really starts with us. According to them, the atonement of Christ had absolutely no power to save anyone, only made it possible. According to them, God's grace is resistible. And according to them, salvation is perishable. Now, I ask you, who would ever devise a system of doctrines like this? But before we, we just point the finger, we need, we need to realize that the beginning of this system of belief is in our own hearts. Because man is at the center of this system of doctrine. Because that's what man desires. Now here's the great warning. If the great danger of Arminianism is pride and arrogance and man-centeredness, and if we understand Calvinism aright, especially the T of total depravity, that our hearts are totally depraved, then we're aware that that pride starts in our own hearts. It's not only a danger in the hearts of Arminian, it's it's a danger in the heart of every man and woman. And what we see that has to be the warning for those who believe in Calvinism, believe in the reformed doctrines of grace, believe in the sovereignty of God, is that you and I also have the danger of pride. So there are those who accept total depravity, but they are proud of it. They are proud of 
of their humility. I've, I've known people who with pride say that they believe the right doctrine which should humble them, but they're proud about it. Some say, well, if God is sovereign and I fell into sin, well, He decreed it, so what could I have done? And, and they so firmly believe in the sovereignty of God that they use it as an excuse to sin. It's, it's like they're proud that they're sinning because at least they understand God right. He's sovereign. So they're blaming God for their evil. Many who believe in an unconditional election are proud that they were elected. They, they are proud that they're the ones for whom Jesus died. And they are also proud that pride even augments when they think, and I'll never lose my salvation. It gives them pride instead of making them humble. I have heard people say, you know, once saved, always saved. And they use that as a license for sin. It is true that once saved, you are always saved. But for that to be true, you have to be saved. People who say, once saved, always saved, that's the right doctrine so I can go on in sin. Those people are not saved. And why being proud is so bad, after all? Because if if this is how some... It's a tricky thing. Some Christians think, I, I have the right system of doctrine, and, and I'm proud of that. Why is that so bad? Well, because if you're proud... These are the list of verses that we can imply. He will not... God will not dwell in your heart, nor revive your heart. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. If you're proud, He will not be near you, nor save you. Psalm 34, 18. If you're proud, He will not heal your broken heart, nor bind up your wounds. Psalm 147, 3. If you're proud, He despises the proud and arrogant. In heart, Psalm fifty-one, seventeen. He will not even look at the proud. Isaiah sixty-six, two. All of those verses are verses saying that God will do these things. He will dwell in the heart. He will revive the heart. He will be near unto one. He will. He will heal. He will. He will bind the wounds. He will look at the contrite in spirit. He will heal the heart. Of the brokenhearted. So these things only happen to those who are humble. And if you're proud that you believe the right doctrines, you don't understand the right doctrines because they are meant to humble. The doctrines of grace lead us in salvation to be humble. See, if you are saved, you must be humble. A proud Christian, if not the greatest, it is one of the greatest contradictions. It is to speak of dry water. A proud Christian is it's almost the same as a sunny night or as midday at midnight. That's what a proud Christian is. It, it, it is a complete contrast. If you profess to be a believer, 
See, this is what you're declaring. You're declaring to be guilty of the greatest crime ever committed on the face of the earth. The very death of the Messiah. You are proclaiming, if you're saying you're a Christian, that you are guilty of killing God. For, for He died for the sins of sinners. And so see, the lie that you told, the gospel that you heard, the, the gossip, I mean, that you heard, the, the hate that you bore in your heart, the discontentment that you displayed, no matter how little it seems a sin is, and how great it may be, if you are forgiven, Jesus had to bear those sins upon Himself on the tree. And he had to suffer hell. And you will be proud. You see, to be a Christian is to come to terms in realizing your lostness. That nothing short of God's grace is sufficient to save you. And let me give you a word if if you are not yet saved. See, this is for you too. How does the sovereignty of God impact your salvation? See, the salvation that you need. If you're unsaved, the sovereignty of God impacts the salvation that you need. How does it impact it? See, do you realize that He is the one to whom you must resort? It is His mercy that you must plead. It is His grace that you must seek. It is His face that you must see. It is His love that you must trust. It is His salvation that you must receive. If salvation is of the Lord, and if it humbles you, then you need to realize there is no price left for you to pay. There are no tears that could be shed by you in order to receive that salvation. There's see no repentance that you can muster as a payment. There's no merit that you can plead. There's nothing you can do. But yet there's something you must do. But see, this doing that you must is not a work. It is not a merit. Because it is, it is like a non-work. This is what you must do. You must, you must beg. You must relinquish. You must surrender. You must come empty-handed. See, when you're coming empty-handed, you're saying, I have nothing. And some have said, yes, empty-handed in terms of your works, but full-handed in terms of your sins. And beloved, just think of this reality that when we come to the cross, there, there is nothing of good, but there is plenty of bad. All of our sins are literally ours, produced by our own heart, and we lay them at the cross. What, what kind of work is that? How can there be work salvation? See, it's, it's non-works altogether. It is, it is surrender. Think of an army that gets to its very end and realizes if we don't put the white flag up, we will all die, we will all perish, our mothers, our children. So raise that white flag. And when they raise that white flag, they are not working any longer. They will shoot no more bullets. They will not put themselves on the line. They are saying, we surrender. That is what repentance and faith is. So it is doing something, and yet it's doing, in essence, nothing. Because you're claiming that you have nothing to do. 
That's what you need to do if you're not yet saved. You must come to this sovereign God who saves and say, Lord, save me. I have nothing to bring. I bring my nothingness. And yet I bring all the millions and millions of sins. Cleanse me. And if you remain far away because you think you're not worthy, that's, that's unbelief. It's not humility. If you think you're not repentant enough, and, and so you're just trying to repent enough. See, that's also not humility. It is pride, because in your heart you think you'll one day get there. You're literally attributing salvation to your own efforts. You think it's humble, but it's actually proud. If you think God has not chosen you, so you dare not come, that is an excuse. We heard that yesterday in the Q&A. It's, it's just an excuse. And, and the problem about this excuse, the reason it is very utterly proud, is that you're using theology to excuse why you do not come. He invited you to come. But you are saying you're not sure if the invitation is true or if it's a forgery. As if the gospel call would go forth from a messenger of the Lord falsely and not unfeignedly like the canons of Dort speak of the gospel call when it goes forth. It is always well meant. It is always sincere. But you're thinking it's maybe sarcastically and not earnestly. Maybe it's to mock me and not to save me. Maybe it's to deceive me and not to forgive me. And there are those who stay away because they want to enjoy sin. Some of them lie about it and they don't let anyone know that's what they're doing. Others are bold about it and say, that's what I'm doing. I want to enjoy sin for a while. I don't want those rigors of religion. But tell me, what are the glories that sin provides. If you're in this pursuit, could you tell me what glories sin gives you? What pleasures compare to the splendor of heaven and the greatness of glory and the blessedness of of forgiveness. Beloved, anyone whose experience would not trade the world that you can lay your head on your pillow and your conscience is clear. May be heavy with the thought my Savior bore it for me, but the blessedness of sleep because He did bear it for me. Beloved, that's heaven on earth. One of the Puritans wrote a whole book, Heaven on Earth is to know you're saved already. And you're already living as if you're in heaven. And beloved, if you're, if you're still pursuing sin, thinking that sin will give you riches, thinking that sin will give you pleasures, thinking that sin will set you forth and give you friends and make you well known, all of that will come to an end. And when you're faced with eternity, you will look back and see how foolish, how wrong, how evil. What will be of your soul when you awake in eternal torment, in solitude and darkness, 
There are people today who go with their friends to have a lot of fun. But in heaven, in hell, you will not find those friends and there will be no fun. I've heard people say that they don't mind going to hell because that's where all their friends are, but they will spend eternity. And if they catch glimpses of them, it will be just to increase their torment because they will share in the torment that they're in. The pain and agony of hell are forever. For some sins now, Not a single one here would purchase a car for a million dollars if you had it. But you will purchase hell for a trifling over some sin. Five more years of a pleasure. Even 40. So is coming empty-handed to the cross too great a price to pay? which is no price at all. So that's why Jesus says, come and purchase without money. It's like we're purchasing, but we have no money. Is that too expensive? Is becoming a spiritual beggar where you are kneeling before the cross too demeaning to you to even go through that when you think He will be good and He will extend His hand and bring you up from that begging condition and make you to sit in heavenly places. That is the promise in God's Word. Why would you doubt it? Is crying for help too hard a work when it's no work at all? To to see your heart for what it is? to, To see your condition for what it is? See, this is merely the truth. These are good things. The truth is simply what it is. It's not laboring. It's not producing. It's, it's not... Um, but what is it? It, it? it is falling. It is repenting. It is believing. It is having a broken heart. It is falling in the hands of this sovereign, gracious God. Will, will you not obey the summons? Think of the summons of John the Baptist that still goes on today. Flee from the wrath to come. And you flee to Jesus. Won't won't you hear Jesus himself who said, Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. There are people who are given to sin and living in sin, and they're not realizing that the day will come unawares. Jesus said, Take heed. Listen to the, the, the heeding, heed to the calls of Peter. We've heard it in two sermons now. Save yourselves from this untoward generation, he told those people before they were all baptized. Could it be that something of that urge was used of the Spirit to bring those people to repent? And then later in the next sermon, he says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Beloved, God's Word has commands, it has invitations, it woos sinners, and it's all well meant. So let the sovereignty of God affect you in that you would seek in Him your salvation. 
That's our first point. Now let's go to our second point. How does the sovereignty of God impact your sanctification? How, how does it affect the sovereignty? How does the sovereignty of God affect... Um, and and, and how, how does it make you think of your sanctification? How does it make you think of your notion of sanctification? And the, the first thing that we can note is this. It helps you know that sanctification is a necessity. I say this because if we go back to Ephesians, where it spoke of Him whom before the foundation of the world um, chose us, verse 4, according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, then it says that we should, should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And so as certain as we speak of the salvation that we're chosen unto... Paul uses that same sovereignty that saves us to speak of the holiness that you and I are called to have. Holiness is a necessity in the sense that God will do it. The saint will be holy. Now, when we speak of God electing us, the first thing that comes to our mind is heaven, that we are elect to be saved. A lot of people think of salvation that way, of course. We, we, we pray in order to be saved, and we're thinking of the ultimate goal, that we may be in heaven. It is our hope, it is our joy. <clears throat> in a way, we're already in heaven, sitting in heavenly places. We, our citizenship is there. There is room for us there. Certainly, heaven is and takes that part. But many may skip holiness. Holiness is part of the package. And it's so important that we read this in Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Just as a humble, a a, a proud Christian is a contradiction such as dry water, so a worldly Christian is a contradiction because God chose us unto holiness. This is what Paul says in Romans 6.22, but now being made free from sin and become servants of God, salvation, heavens ahead, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So yes, heaven is there. Heaven is at hand. It is a hope. But until then, we are holy and we have to grow in our holiness. And beloved, this, this becomes the way, and we find it in Scripture, well, that, that becomes the way for you and me to, to have something of an understanding of whether we are saved or not. Now, you, you might be a believer who is struggling with sin, that, that is a possibility. But the dynamic that happens in the Christian life and Christian experience is you have people who say that they have believed, they have professed their faith, they, they think they're saved, but the struggling just t- takes over them. They're, they're not the ones with the sword anymore. It's as if sin is the one with the sword upon their own lives. They are sometimes addicted to a certain substance, to a certain practice. And you hear sometimes these words, I have tried everything. It's impossible. I just need it. I can't live without it. 
I have fasted, I have prayed, I have cried. God does not deliver me. They start blaming God. Now, let me ask this question. And if you have friends who have this sense of despair, ask them this, have you resisted unto blood? And see, if you're asking this question to someone who's alive, the answer is always no. Because in Hebrews 12.4, where we read, Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, blood, striving against sin. The author literally meant that in our struggles against sin, we need to live and kill sin and not let sin kill us. And the way sin kills us is that it drives us deeper and deeper into sin. And it's trying to take your very life. It cannot do that to a true believer. It will never do that. Sin will never win the day. But what does a believer do? He fights. He fights even if he has to die in fighting. And of course, this has an element of hyperbole connected with what Jesus said that has a connection to even dying. Where if you were to pluck out your eye and then pluck out an arm and then pluck out a leg, you're killing yourself in order to fight sin. Have you resisted unto blood? Are you truly trying everything? See, because people who say that aren't understanding that there's more that they can do. Have you even confessed it to someone trustworthy so that you can be under accountability? Are you really praying morning, noon, and evening like David and Daniel? Are you in the Word? Are you going to church? Are you worshiping the Lord? Are you hanging at every word of the preacher? Are you going to counseling? Are you surrounding yourself with help? See if it's serious, if it's even an addiction, where you might even need medication. There there's certain addictions, beloved. You, you can't, in essence, stop and then go a week without it. You might have a heart attack on the third day. You need to go to the doctor and tell them, I have a substance abuse. I think it is killing me. I need help. And have you gone to a place for three months, for four months, even for a year? Submit yourself to total help. There's a lot of people who say they've tried all that they can all their meaning is that they've read a few books maybe. Maybe they've been praying a little. But they're not even going to church anymore. And the sad thing is that there are many who aren't even believers. So the big reason why they don't supersede sin is because they're not even saved. So sanctification... The sovereign grace of God tells us that sanctification is necessary. But then the second thought, very briefly, is that the sovereign grace of God helps us understand that sanctification is not only necessary, it is possible. Do you notice that 
<clears throat> it is in a form, in a sense, as, as, a, as an absolute. It is, it is not really putting the onus ultimately on the believer. It says, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before, um, before Him in love. Of course, this will imply the reality that we need to grow in sanctification and depend upon the Lord, but it's put here, in a sense, as a promise. Just as He's the one who sovereignly chooses us, He's the one who sovereignly sanctifies us. There's that force to how He's putting it. The force of a promise. And then we go reading in verse 5, we, we are adopted as children. Verse 7, we are redeemed by His blood and our sins are forgiven. In verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit a promise. So the God who predestined us is the God who gives us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies us. And so we shouldn't think of this holiness as something also where, oh, I need to do it, I need to do it, I need to do it. You are active in it, but you are looking to the God who gives you the strength for it. So that ultimately, any success and any hope is all, again, in His sovereign grace. He not only makes it needful, He makes it possible. And that gives strength to the believer Who's, who's in that whirlwind of sin where, yes, even though he feels guilty because he sinned, he knows, I depend on your strength and power, Lord. Help me. So, your salvation, your sanctification, and briefly, your evangelism. And this is where we, we go to Acts. And, and this is the blessing of having that in our minds. We have gone through this sermon. Our last sermon here was, was a great miracle um, where, where this man who was lame for over 40 years is made well. Um, these people are astonished. They're beginning to believe the message, but Peter and John are arrested. This is very different from the day of Pentecost. There, there was not a good end, in a sense, earthly speaking, to the preachers. They ended up in jail. It was evening, and so they go overnight. These pastors are in prison overnight. But, but we can see in what we have read, we have here before us, beloved, a, a wonderful illustration of how the sovereignty of God not only affects our salvation, our sanctification, but also our witness of Christ, our evangelism. Number one, what we see that God did to Peter and John, we can trust that He can do to our hearts. So you can immediately apply what is said about them to you if you believe in the sovereign grace of God and you are saved and growing in holiness by the power of His Spirit. So number one, the sovereignty of God gave them love. They were not proud and arrogant that they believed the right doctrines. They were loving and they had time for a lame man. Beloved, put that into your experience in mind. And we always feel that guilt, don't we? When we see somebody who's on the corner who seems, especially if you see that they're either blind or lame and we pass, we feel that guilt. Because we didn't give them time. And maybe here's a point that if we understand that he has a soul, they have a heart, maybe we should stop. They did. They believed the right doctrines, 
but they had time for a lame man. And they gave that lame man what he needed most. They gave them Jesus. Number two, the sovereignty of God gave them humility. Because when all those people were coming and, and, and astonished at what they said, immediately Peter said it was Jesus. He didn't take that glory to himself. And here too, beloved, you, you and I can, can realize that there's a great temptation there. If you're right there with that poor person maybe talking to them a little bit and someone goes by and says, oh, bless your heart that you're doing that, you immediately feel proud. I, I struggle with that. I feel proud now that I'm being humble helping this poor person. And sometimes I feel proud if I say, no, 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 it's Jesus, it's not me. And I feel a little tinge of pride that I'm giving the glory to Jesus. I'm being so good. Beloved, isn't it sad that this is our heart? But, but see, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, you will be loving, you will be humble. And then thirdly, the sovereignty of God gave him the truth. Peter when you think of what he did, was he just told those men the truth. Think of gospel presentation as simply saying the truth. The truth about God. The truth about man. The truth about the past. The truth about the future. And you're, you're with a friend and you're saying, look, let me just tell you the truth about God. He is sovereign. He is holy. And he sent his son Jesus to die for sinners. Now, let me tell you the truth about you. You are a sinner. You need that sacrifice of Jesus. And let me tell you about the future. If you believe in Jesus, you'll go to heaven. But the Bible says those who don't believe go to hell. If you analyze all that has been said, it's the truth. It's sincerity. When you believe in the sovereignty of God, it gives you truth to share with others. And then fourthly, the sovereignty of God gave them boldness. This is perhaps one of the main things we see. Peter is before the very people whom he denied Jesus for. He is not outside by the fire and with the maidens and the more lowly people. He is in the presence of the Caiaphas and of the Annas and of all the kin of the people that he was scared to death just some days ago. And now he looks them in the eye and he says, You judge. Am I to obey you or God? That's Peter. But then when you think, it's, it's, that's not Peter. That's not the Peter I knew. What happened to Peter? Well, he's a man who believes in a sovereign God. He's a man who has been saved by the sovereignty of God. And we see this effect. Judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And then fifthly and lastly, the sovereignty of God gave him and John dependence. We have not read this, but this will be the next part, but it's also familiar to you. As soon as they're let go, they join the other disciples, they pray. See, as soon as they have this magnificent experience, they're not going to go glory in themselves. They're not going to go talk to people about what they did. They're going to go talk to God, help us. We're being persecuted. 
Lord, thou art sovereign. And after that prayer, the earth shook. Dependence, love, humility, truth. Beloved, may may the sovereignty of God, we've been basking as it were through these sermons in the grace and the sovereignty of God. Ask the Lord that it would have this effect in your sanctification, in your salvation, and in your evangelism. If you're not saved, beloved, that you would go to this God who is saving and gracious and trust Him. And if you're saved, that there be no more excuses, but that you would live a holy life, a beacon of light in this world, not through your strength or power, still through His, but you will strive unto blood. Because He promised it, and He gives you the Spirit to do it. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God, we pray that Thou would help us, Lord, as we, as we come after, after so many sermons before us that have exalted Thy sovereignty, exalted Thy love and Thy grace. Lord, things that we confess are, are even um, mysterious to us when we think, Lord, of the reality that there are those in this world and throughout history who have not been chosen. Lord, may it bring an, a great lowliness to our hearts, Lord, to consider Thy mercy and Thy grace, Thy love and Thy goodness, and that we would be a people, Lord, who are humble, who are lowly, that we would have this love in our evangelizing that we would have this boldness, that we would simply say the truth, that we would have this humility. And Lord, that we would praise and glorify Thee through our dependence. And we ask, Lord, all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.